Hello everyone, welcome to the ICA and welcome to this event which is entitled What Can Post-Cyberfeminism Do for Reproductive Justice? Uh, and this event is part of a series of events uh, which include talks, performances, uh, workshops and different live program which has been co-organized and co-programmed by Rosalie Dobal, uh, one of the curators here at the ICA and the writer Helen Hester. And um, today we're going to be answering this question, what can post-cyberfeminism do for reproductive justice? And um, our chair for today is Eleanor Penny. And <laughs> she is a writer, poet and essayist. She is senior editor at Navarra Media, online editor at Red Pepper Magazine and Houseman's Writer-in-Residence for 2018. Her work focuses on gender, technology, economics and the far right. And our speakers for today will include Shuli Chang, who is a multimedia artist who works in the fields of net-based installation, social interface and film production active in experimental video and net art since the early 1980s her work deals with the techno body and queer politics we also have journey cohen who is an independent essayist and activist based in sheffield most often working in collaboration with sophie monk her key areas of interest are marxist transfeminism the politics of care and disability and communist politics more generally we also have mary magic who is an artist and biohacker working at the intersection of biotechnology and the cultural discourse and cultural discourse. Their most recent projects, Open Source Estrogen and Estrofem Lab, seek to subvert dominant biopolitical agents of hormonal management, knowledge production, and anthropogenic toxicity. So I will leave Eleanor to do further introductions and get us all warmed up for the discussion today. Um, so thank you so much all for coming. Um, it's yeah, it's great to see everyone here because um, we ha we are sitting at the crux of a feminist revolution and the rise of the robots, both of which should have people in power shaking in their very expensive boots. I am thrilled to be asked to be here. This is exactly my jam. And I'm even more thrilled to be here with our fabulous speakers today. Um, we're actually running a competition because at least one of us on this panel is in fact a robot. And if you guess which one it is, you get entered into a raffle and you might win a trip to Marbella. So um, yeah, uh, seriously, we are um, here today to ask what post cyber feminism can do for reproductive justice. And um, I'm just going to give uh, a few a few notes, a few praises to kind of get us all on the same page as to what the hell those actually mean. Um, how the approaches and theoretical frameworks, both of examinations of reproductive justice and of examinations of cyber feminism, can talk to each other and give us a set of, of demands and a set of uh, transformative frameworks. Um, the heuristics of past schools of feminist thought have really failed to adequately provide either a comprehensive critique of injustice for um, the reproductive for the reproductive unfreedoms that people experience, um, or really a utopian horizon for what reproductive justice might look like. 
So if uh, one solely fixates on the boardroom, we erase the more urgent, perhaps, politics of what happens in the bedroom and these days in the chat room. So it's worth dwelling on a few times before we get before we get really into the meat of the substance, as our speakers will. Um, what do we mean by reproduction? So there's the obvious sense in which this has to do with making babies, uh, but we need to think about it more as the production of life more generally, not just the work of gestating and producing a fetus, uh, but as the continuous work of keeping ourselves and uh, each other alive. Um, and this uh, burden is heavily gendered, heavily racialized, and profoundly dependent on one's social class. Um, the work I'm talking about here is caring, cooking, cleaning, emotional labor, all those kinds of things. So when we're talking about reproduction, um, we're also talking about social reproduction, the vital work into which largely women are conscripted from birth. In fact, gender is a useful framework to capture um, precisely the ways in which this work is regulated. Um, how to create a class of people who are supposed to do this work uh, uncomplainingly and largely for free. This work is a way of doing gender, um, or to borrow a phrase from Helen Hester, whose uh, seat I'm currently in, um, gender is a workplace technology. So this broader definition detaches the debate from reproduction, from any particular biological capacity of the typically female or feminine body, um, because you don't need a womb to do reproductive labor in some senses. At a moment when our bodies and social lives are intimately connected with technology, uh, Donna Haraway, who is the author of the Cyborg Manifesto, um, noted that we are all chimeras, theorized, fabricated hybrids of machine and organism. In short, we are all cyborgs. And this poses the question, um, are hands and limbs and minds also reproductive organs? Um, and how about computer programs? Um, it makes us wonder if we can automate or technologically enhance some of the work functions regulated by gender by taking it out of the hands of actual people, will gender be something that becomes technologically obsolete? Can we escape gender online as a space not so totally territorialized by a capitalist patriarchy? So these are the kind of questions um, that the techno-utopian impulses of cyber-feminism ask. Post-cyber-feminism, on the other hand, uh, I think it's fair to say, treats technology with slightly more skepticism. Um, technologies themselves are politically neutral, but the pressing matter is not simply what robots can do, but who owns them and who programs them and who is excluded from the futures that they promise. Um, the washing machine, for instance, reduced the time burden it took to do a certain domestic labor, but it also reprivatized the, uh, the burden of that labor, making it totally within the sphere of the nuclear family. So technology doesn't guarantee us uh, more freedom. So as always, we must return to the question of power. We need to address the idea that um, technologies are no longer the utopian promises of the uh, fated by the early cyber feminists, but they're now very domestic. The future they promised us is here, and we are no more free because of it. The future is just not what it used to be. Um, and that's not to mention the particularly gendered challenges of uh, virtual life. You know, just um, ask Diane Abbott. Um, we are living in the time of the feminist future, um, and uh, it's yeah, 
it's not what it's cracked up to be. So how do we go forward from here? So uh, despite this scepticism, obviously our virtual and technological lives have radically altered our relationships to many sites of power which shape current debates around reproduction. It's transformed our relationships with the space around us, uh, where the people and resources uh, in our networks of survival actually are, and they're therefore perhaps where our political loyalties lie. Um, it's transformed our notions of political subjectivity, uh, what it is to engage politically, how it happens, and how political formations are configured. Uh, likewise, our relationship with property, particularly the question of whether and how we can be said to own ourselves. And also the relationship with affect, how the emotional tenor of our lives and how we collectively think through and build a sense of new ethics is founded on different affective relations. And of course, new biotechnologies have radically altered our relationships with our own bodies and with sex. So it's worth outlining here a few uh, points of contact between post-cyberfeminism and reproductive justice that our wonderful panel can uh, perhaps expand upon. Uh, for instance, uh, the control over reproduction, either by banning abortion or forced sterilization, renders women uh, legally non-human. You're, you're a subject incapable of self-rule and you're not an end in yourself. Uh, but the theorization of the self as cyborg is particularly troublesome from in, for enlightenment notions of humanity, um, which is uh, reliably a category used to exclude everyone but the white, bounded notion of the property-owning cis man, usually straight. Uh, by disrupting this category, we could depower one of the principal ideological weapons of patriarchy, that uh, is to say to deem women and non-binary people as not human, to which the response is, well, you know, neither are you. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you one person. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's also the, um, the, t the material basis uh, on which a woman's and non-binary people's reproductive unfreedom uh, is founded. People have talked of the evolution of ectogenesis or artificial wombs as hailing the technological obsolescence of gender. There are clearly a couple of problems with this. First of all, uh, we should pay attention to who gets access to exogenesis, aka which populations are exempted from the deeply dangerous uh, biological processes of gestation and birth, processes which Shulamith Firestone called uh, brutal and barbaric. Uh, so there's a chance there that it wouldn't uh, alleviate divisions of gender, more concretize uh, divisions of, say, race and class. But more fundamentally, this automates only one small part of the work that gender seeks to regulate. There's only one function, this claims, uh, performed by the technology of gender. Um, and uh, we carry evidence to, uh, to the fact that that's untrue around us within, in our pockets. If uh, the technology of gender performed only the work of um, reproduction in the sense of making babies, then there would no then there would be no point of coding the technologies of Siri and Alexa and Cortana as female. There is a dollar sign on reinventing femininity um, for a virtual age. This is a femininity that's actually much more efficient because uh, it doesn't have to attach to any particular woman who might you know, object to it. Um, and it's also worth thinking about the or or organizational insights of cyber feminism. Um, so what would a truly social social reproduction look like? Cyberfeminists have focused on the idea of the dispersed network as an antidote to masculine, monolithic, centralised notions of power. 
Um, we can use the ideas of the network or the web or the circuit board as imagining um, networks of, so, of mutual dependency on which we can build collaborative networks of mutual survival. So uh, according to this account, we're not uh, atomized, bounded individuals. We are nodes in a human network. And similarly, the, way in which, the ways in which new technologies have transformed proper waged work, um, feminized it, according to many, many theor theorists, have rendered traditional demands of feminism uh, for reproductive justice, such as wages for housework, less and less relevant. And so how can cyber feminism in the, uh, in the gap left by the, uh, by the hollowness of um, outmoded demands, how can it help us frame demands that orient ourselves towards some kind of utopian impulse that doesn't solely focus on outsourcing the revolution to the robots? So the questions of post-cyber feminism are how can we integrate the dynamism and the insights of cyber feminism, uh, and here I quote Helen Hester again, without being exclusionary or restricting possible incidences of difference and contestation. So how can we fix our sights on transforming the power surrounding technology, not simply how can we use technology to transform society? The cyber feminist asks how gender can be hacked by new technology. The post-cyber feminist, however, asks how we can hack the technology of gender and indeed how we can hack cyber feminism. So we know we can't outsource the revolution to the robots, but they could shape what the revolution looks like. So, um, you know, what next? I'm going to pass on to uh, Joni Cohen, who's hopefully going to uh, answer what next, because I, I sure as hell don't know. Joni? Um, hi everyone, um, I just want to thank Helen and Rosalie for inviting me on this panel um, and organising this incredible event. Can everyone hear me? Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to reproductive justice, I'll be focusing, I'll be, I'll be moving away from the strict notion of biological reproduction, from the producing of new versions of ourselves, the production and non-production of children. Instead, I will be focusing on what is called, in Marxist feminist discourse, social reproduction. This is a broad term that incorporates biological reproduction but is not limited to it. It is nothing less than the various processes, labours and technologies through which we produce and reproduce our lives from day to day and from year to year. It is the process of life making, not just the making of new life but the sustaining and flourishing of currently existing life, understood in its full, and so, full social and biological sense. And, how, and, and it is how post-cyber feminism and justice relate to this kind of reproduction that I'm most focused on. Post-cyber feminism is and must be a queer and trans feminism. As such, its focus on reproduction must go far beyond that of cisgendered and straight-oriented feminisms, which limit a lot of their understanding of reproductive justice to issues of pregnancy and abortion. This is, of course, incredibly important, but it's not what I'll be focusing on today. The mo uh, for post-cyber feminism, to be a queer and trans feminism, it must situate biological reproduction within the broader category of social reproduction and discuss how they interlink and co-mingle. So if post-feminism is to properly engage with queer and trans issues of reproduction, it must look at particular forms of social reproduction that occur within the queer and trans communities. So I'd like to continue by making a few, a few gestures or suggestions on theoretical and practical ways in which post-cyber feminism can intervene in the realm of social reproduction. 
if post-sudden feminism is to have a material impact rather than a simply theoretical movement, rather than be a simply, a simply theoretical movement, it must engage with some level of materialist politics. My belief is that the best way to, best way to struggle for reproductive justice is a practical project of communization. Here I understand communization as the, product, as the production of commons, of shared resources of wealth, labor, and technology, which are not mediated by the state or capital. It is about developing forms of life-making which are not arranged to feed into the preservation and expansion of patriarchal capitalism. It is through these projects of solidarity and commons production that the conditions of life-making for women and non-binary people can be materially, materially improved. For me, this is what constitutes justice. Justice is the equal availability of, of the means of life-making for all. And of course, within feminism, it must be attuned to the particular needs and struggles of women and non-binary people and their lives. What makes this, pro this project a post-cyberfeminism in particular is its engagement and relation to technologies. The, te the, technologies most mo the technologies most important for social reproductive justice that I want to talk about are probably biotechnologies, pharmaceutical technologies, and, digi and digital communication technologies. It goes without saying that post-cyberfeminism is a techno-feminism. It wants to engage with technologies and embrace some and intervene in others for the, for the sake of liberation. But it goes slightly beyond this, and this is what Helen Hester writes about extensively in her work on xenofeminism, that technology is not just about an individual, individual instruments or machines, etc., but it's a particular relation to material reality. It relates to material reality or nature as something infinitely plastic and malleable, a clay to be moulded and intervened with for the sake of liberation and justice. As Laboria Kibonik say, if nature is unjust, change nature. It is with this, with this in mind that I want to talk about post-cyberfeminism's relation to medicine, and particularly in relation to mental health. I believe one of the most pressing issues of, in terms of social reproduction of women and non-binary people is that we suffer, massive, suffer massively disproportionately from depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other forms of mental illness. This is largely because of our disproportionate poverty, our precarious employment and housing situations, and the incredibly high chance that we, that, that we, will, we will be sexually assaulted or domestically abused as some, at some point in our lives, as well as many other things. And as such, psychiatric pharmaceuticals are an integral part of, the material, of our material reality and embodiment. I personally know very few women and non-binary people, especially queer and trans people, who do not suffer from chronic mental illness and are medicated with some form of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. It is important for post-cyberfeminism to have a nuanced relation to these biotechnologies. There still exists a hangover from anti-psychiatric movement in the 60s that psychiatric medication formed part of a, te a technique of politico-pharmacological control, that psychi psychiatry is invested in the mass suppression of negative and antagonistic affect and emotion that is necessary for political struggle. And further, that the medical establishment diagnoses and prescribes medication upon gendered lines in order to perpetuate a docile relation to patriarchal oppression. This traditional reaction, then, is to reject, med is to reject medication on these grounds, which forms a kind of biotechnophobia to to certain feminisms. This is, of course, not without foundation, but for a 21st century techno-feminism, it is far too simplistic. Certainly, the experiences of fatigue and, and a general restricting of the range, of range and intensity of emotional experience can lead us to invest less of ourselves into feminist struggle. 
But the demand for activists to always be immediately and fully emotionally present in political struggle is strangely purist and misses the key point that, at times, a reprieve from the highs and lows of depression can actually provide us with the emotional distance required to participate at all. To share from my own personal experiences, while physical or verbal confrontation with, with street harassers or transmisogynists are, barely tra are unbearably tra traumatic and overwhelming, the dulling of the senses by um, SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, for example, has in actual fact proved advantageous to dealing with strategically with situations as they escalate. It can allow us to deal with gendered violence in a, in a, in a more effective way and, and in some cases successfully fight back. This represents the possibility of a weaponization of our own mental illness, using the medications that we require because of our conditions to in fact enable us to struggle against those conditions. We should not understand our brain chemistry to be altered from pure or original state when we use these biotechnologies, but, but embrace the notion that there is a plasticity to our brains which can be manipulated through using these biotechnologies for the purposes of liberation. Once we understand our relation to the te these technologies and the necessity in reproducing our lives from day to day, defending ourselves and staying safe, and therefore to be in a position to struggle, it is, it is access to these simple elements of life-making that constitute, for me, reproductive justice. Um, I will not talk specifically about trans healthcare with regard to access to hormone replacement therapy, as this will be covered perfectly well in another presentation. Um, and we can talk about that in discussion afterwards. What I do want to discuss as an example of post-cyberfeminist social reproductive practice um, with regard to trans healthcare is um, healthcare cooperatives. Um, the activist group Action for Trans Health has done some very good work f um, towards this, fundraising and then allocating money for trans people for health for healthcare-related expenses according to need. I think this is essential to post-cyberfeminism's practice that this and um, this more is this like the time ending. Sorry, Sorry. all right. Um, <laughs> I like, I thought I was telling you to the shut robots up. robots are there. If you could yeah, just so dial down your yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it is essential for post-cyber feminist practice that this and, more, this and more become a much larger project. We need to produce a trans commons where trans people can collectively pull money to buy, to buy transition drugs online in bulk and share them out. Also, the purchasing of expensive laser, laser hair removal machines collectively and getting members of the trans community trained in, the, in these procedures so that trans people can access what is a difficult, painful and individualised and extremely expensive procedure in a safe and cheaper way. Digital communication technologies are essential to this process and have offered me and many, of, many others in, in queer and trans communities um, essential lifelines and access to monetary help. Through the use of fundraiser websites such as GoFundMe and others, practical solidarities can be forged that intervene in the precarity of queer and trans life, enabling people to survive within an economy of liberal, neoliberal denial or delay of basic access to healthcare and benefits. To sum up, justice in the sphere of social reproduction is, for me, essential to post-cyberfeminism's capacity to be a queer and trans-feminism. The digital and biotechnologies that are implicated in our life, make it, in our life-making, are essential to our capacities to produce something like reproductive justice, which, as I said before, should be understood as a communal access to the means of social reproduction, to health, safety, security, identity, and happiness, to the flourishing of life-making. Um, 
And I'd just like to end with a quotation from um, the first essay that um, I wrote last year with my writing partner um, on queerness and precarity. And it just kind of gives an idea of what I mean by the practical solidarities which are essential for any kind of queer or transfeminist project of social reproductive justice. Okay. Um, and so we plan our escapes from the scourges of the family and the state. We make endless cups of tea for one another. We share our Valium and our estrogen prescriptions. We clean each other's rooms when our siblings are too immobilised by depression to do it themselves. We check that everyone is fed, that everyone has a roof over their heads. We share warm beds and warmer cuddles. We sit in doctors' waiting rooms and the foyers of police stations, holding hands in a shared, understanding silence. We pool resources, sub each other's rents, and congratulate each other every day that we manage to get out of bed. We make Facebook groups for selfie sharing, just, to, just so we can tell each other that we are beautiful and important. We organise club nights where we can enjoy ourselves in relative safety. We accompany each other into, into, into public toilets when there is no degendered option available. We sit in the warm darkness that collects in the back of pubs. We comfort, we care, we fight off our street harasses. At home, we build a wall around our sanctuaries, and on the street, we chip away at, at the walls that divide us, shattering the windows of the monuments to our misery. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was fabulous. Um, and so now we're going to pass over to Shuli, who I believe has... This is the thing, we spend a lot of time talking about like the oncoming robot revolution and then I just spend half the other time just shouting at the internet to try and make it work. <laughs> um, after you, over you go. Okay, thanks. Um, actually, I'm, I'm known in a certain circle, particularly in my film. Um, I actually make a science fiction poem. So I should be talking about sex instead of making babies. Um, but in, actually, Feel I free. am. Huh? Feel free. <laughs> I'm actually going to talk about making babies, just to be uh, working with the topics. Um, I actually would be focused on talking about a performance project that I'm developing right now in France called Unborn Zero Times Nine. Uh, however, I would start uh, with uh, a few photos to kind of bring us. Um, Okay, so uh, this is the image of Sophia, the first uh, supposed to be the cyborg citizen adopted by Saudi Arabia. Um, there was a kind of lengthy interview uh, done between her and her creator. And uh, I think uh, to go back to, uh, you talk a bit about the robot uh, or the replicant, uh, I actually prefer replicant. Uh, in terms of human-machine interface. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's a, a typical about this whole uh, creation of a woman robot, uh, uh, or the man, of a teen man creating this woman robot, and uh, she has been designed to learn and adapt to human behavior and work with humans. So uh, this is actually quite... Uh, interesting to uh, bring up the conversation I want to do. Um, the next picture is the, uh, recently I, I think with the release of the Blade Runner 2049, uh, I was the one that uh, uh, 
one of my film called IKU in 2000 was actually a sort of a sex, uh, I call it sci-fi cyberpunk porn, which is a takeoff on Blade Runner. So I'm a, a kind of Blade Runner enthusiast. Uh, so when I saw the 2049 Blade Runner, I was uh, quite interested to discover the the whole scenario has turned to uh, how the replicant now can have the possibility of reproduction and actually create the tension between the human and uh, uh, replicants uh, in terms of uh, if if the replicant can start reproduction, what would that mean to us? So you know, here is a two hour and twenty minutes film about chasing down uh, the baby produced by the replicants uh, with a lot of excitement. Um, so again, it's, it's quite interesting. Maybe we should be talking about the, the production, reproducting, uh, production rights of the replicants. Should we? <laughs> anyway, that was, should bring us to the post-cyberfeminism, post I think. Um, okay, so in terms of what the future is predicting or what is kind of predicting for us for the future is that I think basically the womb should be deemed obsolete uh, because now you can have the artificial worms for the future. And uh, actually recently I also uh, been kind of studied this whole uh, ace freeze uh, project. Uh, I don't know if you, last year I was in one of the kind of virtual future uh, conference and uh, there was a, I think it's called Timeless. I think it's a project called Timeless that how encourage women to freeze the eggs, you know, for the future, uh, for the future reproduction because, you know, while you were young, you should be, you know, really joining the production force. Um, and really work, and then if you freeze your eggs, you can consider. I think, you know, usually I think we have this kind of 40 years, age 40 as a threshold for the woman to be able to reproduce or not, uh, based on if it's uh, coming from the womb. So a lot of these um, kind of reproduction in terms of, you know, uh, why should women have the uh, nine months of labor uh, to endure, this whole process, um, anyway. So, however, uh, I do want to get back uh, to the part that I'm developing called Ambon uh, Zero Times Nine, uh, Zero being the, the Ambon one, uh, Nine being the nine months. Um, and uh, the part that actually started with that I was invited for a residency with uh, this particular project called EcoPen, which is based in Paris in a hospital called Hotel Du. Uh, and uh, what they are developing, and actually there's been a, a quite a few uh, new uh, development in um, uh, echo stethoscope, uh, stethoscope uh, how in a way to challenge the establishment of medical equipment being so expensive, being so institutional, um, right now, uh, the EcoPen project is a sort of is sort of private funded project, but based in the, in a hospital, uh, to develop a, a low cost uh, 
uh, echography machine uh, device that connected to the iPhone. So basically, they hope to uh, sort of being able to do this kind of biohacking, uh, well, technology hacking. Uh, in the way to have this machine uh, being still being used by the medical people. Uh, it's a totally sort of uh, DIY uh, hardware, software reproduction, um, and uh, hoping to bring the device down to uh, around, uh, well, they say 300 euro, but it's very suspicious. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, the idea with this machine, uh, the, the, the echoscope, uh, is to uh, able to be used by more sort of uh, underprivileged, not have access to the hospital, check up, you know, the women in, say, the remote area and, and all that. Anyway, so I, I kind of got invited uh, by Echo Pen and um, our, uh, our organization called uh, M2 Machine. Uh, it's R2 Machine, R2M. Oh, it's like all these uh, short. Uh, to uh, to develop a project to hack uh, to hack these uh, uh, stethoscope stethoscope and uh, so. Uh, that actually is when I came out. Um, I just uh, maybe show a, a quick picture of uh, what the development is like. What happened? Uh, okay. Um, yeah. So it's it's sort of uh, 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 this whole uh, stethoscope has been. Um, being built, you know, with uh, kind of sort of cell-made hardware, and uh, uh, you know, at the moment is still in the kind of development stage. Um, so I got invited to uh, to make a hacking project of this device, and uh, so it's like kind of hack within a hack, right? Um, so I came up with the idea uh, about, uh, well, I kind of called it a hacking performance um, in a certain way that uh, there's a, a few things I want to achieve with this project, but eventually it will become a performance. Uh, is to, uh, first part is to convert the user sound uh, sonography into audible sound. Uh, that's one thing I want to hack. Uh, the second thing is to consider the whole uh, ultrasound uh, device being such a military device in the 1960s, and then to come out uh, to sort of develop into the, the idea of, uh, well, examining, exploring the whole general uh, politics aesthetics. And uh, unavoidably, I kind of got into, uh, you know, speaking, you know, I'm really focusing on the echo. Uh, uh, stethoscope as a, uh, as a baby uh, echography uh, device. So uh, it, it sort of kind of became quite uh, an issue between uh, an omectic uh, baby versus the uh, future phantom baby. Well, anyway. So the project in the beginning was developed based on the research and um, and workshop with the 
expecting mothers or unexpected mothers. And I have, uh, right from the beginning, was going to be more focused on a single mother. For me, I think the single mother had become such a sort of nouveau class in our society. And, uh, but as I develop and keep holding different workshops uh, with different women and uh, some sort of mother or unmother, and the project kind of developed into a, a, a more, uh, maybe more complex way uh, in terms of to reconsider the motherhood, uh, to consider uh, what would motherhood be. And, uh, you know, so it became an idea to make up um, different scenario for the performance. And uh, uh, maybe I, I would just quickly go through some of the fabricated scenario in terms of the motherhood we consider. Uh, if we start talking about motherhood, yes, uh, the first we come to pro-life motherhood. Uh, I guess um, this is have always been such a uh, well, right on the feminism in terms of the anti-abortion, anti-contraception, uh, that's one threat. And we've come to pro-choice motherhood, so that, uh, well, country that you agree with the abortion pills, um, artificial insemination. Uh, we also have the law enforced motherhood uh, when abortion is made illegal. The subversive motherhood referred to also to uh, a writer, Maria Lopez's uh, book. Uh, it's really for the post-sex feminism and much more into the whole gender queer parenting. And transsex parenthood uh, is a, a consideration of, uh, between uh, transsex uh, F2M, M2F, or the non-binary, uh, including uh, so-called artificial worms that, that's totally possible to be implemented. Uh, denied pregnancy is about, well, refuse to believe that you're pregnant or reject uh, pregnancy. I think this is a, a whole, it's also a whole genre of the uh, people don't want to, women don't want to make baby because uh, political reasoning, um, not to increase population of the world, something like that. Unaware pregnancy, I think this is uh, one particular area we really want to dig into, particularly found imposed by social conditions with sex workers and drug users. The forced pregnancy, the pseudocysis uh, of uh, that, uh, well, it's kind of pretending to be pregnant, I guess. Uh, the surrogate motherhood that we start talking about, the whole social workforce, the hired motherhood to uh, to bear a baby for, uh, anyway, uh, I guess it's uh, also considered to be social uh, class uh, difference. Um, with all these uh, in, in sort of, um, yeah, <laughs> sort of the, the whole project became, uh, for me, maybe the, the hacking of the device is uh, not so important anymore because uh, in terms of converting the ultrasound into uh, the audible uh, sound, in the beginning I was actually, actually the title, the, the beginning title for this project is called the Ultra Love Song for the Unborn. So I was really thinking about like, well, you know, I'm gonna really make a romantic uh, performance uh, kind of dealing with uh, 
between uh, the baby and the mother, and it's a kind of one-on-one -on -one relationship, uh, making it into a collective uh, sound performance, or you know, audiovisual performance. However, when uh, when I start dealing with the motherhood, then then it seems to become more of a, for me more become a social hacking project in terms of getting connected with all these different uh, group of women that coming from different backgrounds and we have a, actually quite a lot of debate. So I consider the performance will be a project in development and with many workshops and even for the performance we will be uh, quite involved with the women in different cities when staging a performance. Um, in terms of... Uh, at the end, I guess the the project uh, have to deal with the what would it mean um, of this the, the belly, the warmth uh, for the women, you know, in what well, we want to post cyber feminist uh, era. Uh, is is this whole for me? is a it's a very contested ground here, and uh, that I do not really consider this this is uh, maybe it's almost like obsolete uh, I'm sorry to say that just to to say that you know it's it's really debatable uh, in terms of the these particular um, yeah um, at the same time um, there is uh, I don't know if you're uh, aware that this is like actually a phantom baby device that you can buy on a you know, it's it's actually used for medical uh, checkup. You know, during the whole uh, echographic checkup, you know, you can use a, a phantom baby device to to do all the checkup and to make the research and study. And uh, I keep thinking a lot about how, if we want to deal with so many issues of the motherhood, then uh, I I do have to involve the phantom babies. Anyway, so um, eventually um, the performance does involve uh, putting pregnant women on stage uh, to do a light uh, echography checkup, and uh, the that actually uh, also we will convert the ultrasound into audible device, but uh, into audible sound, but. Recompose and remodified, and actually, uh, I'm hoping to get together nine women on stage and uh, with uh, different um, with different uh, takeout, you know, from the echo sound uh, uh, that the the sound will be kind of become a kind of collective echo of the unborn. Uh, but at the moment, the unborn of course become uh, quite. Uh, it's free for interpretation, you know, maybe there was not, there is never any baby to speak of, but uh, I guess it's a kind of glitch baby at the end. Um, so <laughs> speaking of glitch baby, just sort of like, you know, I end with this uh, image. Did, I, did you just give me a minute thing? I just, um, sort of oh, it's fine. So, yeah. I, was, I thought I was doing that so subtly and you just. Oh, okay. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Oh, subtle. You're Why? my buzz. Just like so, you got one minute. Anyway, so um, this is the last image I leave you for the glitch babies, I guess. Thanks. Thank you. And we're on to our final speaker. This is Mary.
So what we're going to do at the end, just to let you know, is we're going to take uh, groups of three, groups of questions in threes, and I will absolutely insist that they are questions, not comments, um, because uh, a speech from the floor is a hanging offence in my book. Just consider yourself forewarned. Hello. So I'm... Uh Chinese-American, born and raised in Los Angeles, and I just want to thank uh, Rosie for organizing all of this, and also Helen Hester for inviting me to this panel. Um, today I'm going to focus on a project I've been working on collaboratively um, for two and a half, three years now, called Open Source Estrogen. So Open Source Estrogen is a collaborative, investigative project seeking to demonstrate the various entrenched ways that hormones have colonized our bodies, environments, and ideologies. Taking influence from critical art ensemble and Sabrosa, and the concept of fuzzy biological sabotage, the project is open source in the sense that the hormone hacking protocols that I've been exploring are open and constantly evolving. And it's also open source in the sense that estrogen is all around us in the most ubiquitous way. And it's also ready for us to hack, to, to manipulate, to create new subjectivities around. So the project actually started um, around the topic of, well, is there some kind of open source recipe for the birth control pill? Does that even exist? And um, my collaborator, Byron Rich, who is a Canadian white male, he wanted to, he was traveling with his wife and they didn't have uh, any access to birth control pills. And okay, let's face it, they wanted to fuck without consequences. A lot of people do. And so he came up with this idea. And when I started to research it even more, I realized, well, um, estrogen and progesterone are the primary ingredients in this pill but it's also a primary ingredient in HRT, hormone replacement therapy. And it's also a primary ingredient for menopausal treatments. And also, you know, it's like, it's used for everything. And so I started to dive deeper into this and, um, and also speculate more about the scenario of what if there was a recipe, like a cooking recipe that you perform in your kitchen for synthesizing estrogen. Like thinking on this scenario and speculating on it, it made me question, well, who has access right now currently to estrogen? Who is controlling its distribution? And are there any ways that we can circumvent this institutional gatekeeping of this hormone? So, the pill is a, I mean, okay, so the hormones are extremely biopolitically charged substances because not only are they used to control and manage our bodies, but they're also considered um, the molecules that produce our gender. You know, that gender is codified by these molecules, right? So, 
So we have to think about estrogen and testosterone as uh, molecules that are enforcing this heterosexual binary system. There's a really great, great quote. Um, we didn't just find these hormones in some lost corner of the earth, right? We didn't discover them, like these, this idea of estrogen producing femininity and testosterone producing masculinity. We, when we went looking for these hormones, we were already inscribing this idea of gender biases into them. So just to go very, very briefly into the history, in the early 1900s, there was this huge uh, conquest, right? this hormone conquest between several European companies, and they were racing to identify, isolate, and purify these hormones. But at the time, there's no technology to verify that, yes, we found estrogen, yes, we found testosterone. So what they did was use these bioassays. So basically, animal and human test subjects to see if, you know, okay, I'm going to take out this rooster's testicles, then give, give the rooster these, uh, what I think might be testosterone, because I, I blended a bunch of testicles up and I'm gonna give it to the rooster. And then the scientists would say, okay, so the rooster seems to be acting more aggressive and more territorial. And I think, you know, if this is what's happening, then let's try to market it towards humans. So, I mean, this is a very rough, <laughs> it was more complicated than that, but, um, but you can see that these experiments were, um, they came with a lot of gender biases. And just to switch gears, the more, I, the more I researched hormones, the more I also realized, well, the hormones are already all around us because of industrial capitalism. I mean, it started with pharmaceutical industry. Then when they couldn't uh, find a hormone that would, or they, they couldn't find the molecule that would produce the effects they were looking for, then they started to produce these synthetic molecules like BPA, which is like in our plastic water bottles, and DES, and then they realized, wow, these synthetic molecules are producing the effects that we're looking for. Like, like uh, um, they're causing breast development, and it's gonna cure homosexuality, all these things, right? So, so this was kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, we see these industries as being separate, but they're actually all related. All these capitalist industrial corporations, right? So you have agro-industrial, agro petrochemical, and pharmaceutical as the primary industries that are producing all these toxic substances that now we know, now after like 50 and 60 years, that they are hormone mimicking, that they have hormonally active properties. And when I say that, I mean that these molecules are able to bind to our estrogen receptors, and that causes all kinds of uh, endocrine disrupting effects. So I see this as a kind of molecular colonization, right, that is slow and pervasive, a crisis comparable to climate change. And, I mean, this sounds like really scary shit, and I know that a lot of people that hear this for the first time 
um, get arrested with fear, but that's not what I'm trying to do today. I'm, I mean, of course, we all need to have a collective consciousness about this and to realize that it's not just only our bodies that are being affected, but it's also non-human species. It's the environment. Everything's being thrown into chaos, but there, there's stuff that we can do about it. You know, it's, we're not completely helpless. So um, I'm gonna talk about some estrogen hacking protocols that uh, me and my friends my fellow biohackers have been exploring. I'm gonna go through it really quick. Um, so the first one is uh, these yeast biosensors. So they actually turn yellow in the presence of estrogen because I genetically modified them. And uh, I see this as a way of collaborating with another species. I, I consider the, the yeast one of my collaborators and sadly they, um, they died this year, I couldn't, I didn't maintain them well enough. But the good thing is that, I mean, while I did have them for a year and a half or so, um, biology is self-reproducing, so as long as I kept growing them and feeding them, then they continued to uh, work with me. But that ended um, this year. The next protocol is, um, is a kind of DIY solid phase extraction. This is a method I use for collecting the estrogens in water, in large bodies of water. So looking at estrogens in the river, in your water supply, etc. So this is just a series of peristaltic pumps and these fancy cartridges for uh, basically trapping the estrogens. And then um, if you pair that with the yeast biosensors, then it, I, you're performing what I like to call river gynecology because you're extracting what's uh, estrogenic in your river and then diagnosing it basically, like uh, reading if it's estrogenic or not. The next protocol is what I like to do for extracting hormones from the urine. And um, it's not an exact science because what I'm extracting is not pure estrogen. That would be really fucking hard. I'm actually trapping um, all kinds of hormones, even the stress hormones. And it's really hard to isolate just the individual ones. But um, after this panel, I'm actually going to be doing a pee performance and everyone who's attending is invited to also give some of their urine to the performance. So we'll have some cups for you. And you can pee in your own privacy. I will pee on stage, but you can pee in your privacy. <laughs> Just give me your pee afterwards. And the last one is the newest um, trajectory I've been exploring, which is becoming with fungi. So there are many species of fungus that can actually break down these toxicities. And I find this really poetic and beautiful because, uh, again, like uh, establishing cross-species relationships, but also um, it gives me the sense that um, species can adapt and survive and they can live with and become with these toxicities. And my work, my practice is uh, based mostly in workshopology. And um, 
When I say workshopology, what I really mean is public amateurism. This is a phrase that I'm borrowing from Critical Art Ensemble, which they so masterfully have done, which is repeating these biological experiments in the public and failing in the public, learning in the public and failing in the public. And this is such an important process of demystifying the sciences because we were just talking earlier, ac academia is, is so full of jargon, so much rhetoric, and, uh, and for topics that concern our daily lives, we need to find some way to connect with the science, connect with these tools, and then create our own subjectivities around them. I'm gonna switch gears because it sounds like I'm not talking about reproduction that much, but I, I will get to it. Um, so I came across this scientific paper uh, last year, and the scientists basically hybridized two species of freshwater fish. And the result was a hermaphrodite fish. And then they called it a hopeful monster in the title of the paper. And um, I thought this was a really interesting way to phrase um, this organism that they created in this laboratory setting, but can now be, I don't know, if it were to be released in the environment, it could self-reproduce. It won't need to find a mate, basically, to produce babies. And I thought, well, um, the effects of these toxicities, of these endocrine disruptors, um, they cause a whole range of effects, right, from um, neurological effects like, like autism, lower IQ, and also a lot of reproductive effects, right? You have early onset puberty and ovarian cancers, testicular cancers, breast cancers, and also worldwide sperm drop count, which is true, really. And, but the public tends to focus on the reproductive effects and I think that this is the, the kind of battleground, like this is the contested territory um, that implicates gender and sex and all these other things. And it makes you realize how deeply entrenched this idea of reproductive futurism is. You know, like uh, this idea that, okay, if um, like man and woman has to come together to, to reproduce, to produce a baby, and then these toxicities are interfering with that, and it's basically uh, flipping our whole idea of heteronormativity you know, up on its head, and it's frightening, it's terrifying, right? And it, oftentimes we forget that there are a diversity of bodies that already exist among us, and a lot of their bodies don't fit into what you see in biology text textbooks, and yet we still try to reinforce that there is a male body and a female body, that's what it should look like. But we have hermaphrodite bodies, intersex bodies, and oftentimes their bodies are medicalized or pathologized, right? And these bodies have to be uh, put under hormone therapies to quote unquote correct them. So the, the topic of endocrine disruption, what's happening to us now uh, is producing this endocrine disrupted body, right? And it's challenging and it's um, alienating us, right? Our notions of what is normal and natural. And I think that's a good thing. I think that we should be confronting these deeply entrenched notions because 
there's no way that we can escape what's happening. I mean, they're finding plastics in the deepest parts of the ocean, in the Mariana Trench. They're finding PCBs. You know, so, so toxicities have reached every single crevice of the planet. And there's no, this is the reality of, of the world we live in. And I think that the, the sooner we can let go of these notions of heteronormativity and what is normal, what is natural, then the sooner we can kind of emancipate ourselves and produce some kind of resistance, right? Whether it's within your own community or, yeah, just letting go of the idea of making babies. I mean, I'm, it's, sometimes I sound like a, a, hip, a hypocrite when I say that because I'm actually pregnant right now, but, uh, <laughs> but I support you know, reproductive strategies of all types just because I'm able to uh, produce a placenta or lactate does not make me any more female than a trans woman, for example. So, anyways. And um, it's funny because I'm also ending on this topic of glitching because uh, this is like, uh, this is a, uh, a gif that I made of uh, all the molecules that are basically uh, circulating in, in the body right now, in the blood right now. And to me, it reminds me of glitch art. And you can think of all of our bodies as constantly being in flux. I mean, we're not even human, right? Like, we, there's, we live with microorganisms in our bodies, and they're controlling how we think and what we, what we want to eat. And so I think that, um, and also to go back to what Joni said so beautifully about plasticity, that um, our bodies are super malleable and that we have to let go of this this old and tired notion of a stable and fixed body. I think that doesn't exist. And what we see with the toxicities, it's, uh, it's telling us that our bodies are very plastic. It's just that that's alien to our notions of heteronormativity. Thank you. So much food for thought there. Um, so I have a million questions myself, um, but uh, I'm gonna throw it open to the floor. So um, could you put your hand up very high if you have a question? Hello. Oh, uh, oh yes. Sorry, I'm I'm terribly blind. Hence, there we go. So thanks, everybody. I have a question for Mary. Uh, two two questions. How do you define um, collaboration without consent? These are the times we live in, consent. <laughs> and do you look into studies, like for example, um, studies of places that are producing birth control factories, uh, uh, birth control pr like production places and how that impacts the local environment? So two, two questions. Collaboration, how is collaboration without consent possible? And um, what other kinds of studies do you look into? The first question is really interesting because um, oh, I don't think that it's possible to have collaboration without consent. Um, during this whole hormone conquest, they sourced urine from so many different bodies without their knowledge. They didn't know they were contributing to the capitalist patriarchy of science. They didn't know they were they're advancing these uh, really, I mean, sadistic scientific experiments, but yet their urine was sourced and a lot of other organs were sourced. And I don't think that's collaborative. 
But at the same time, I subject my you know, non-human collaborators to a lot of stress as well, the fungi and uh, the yeast, right? So now we're getting into cross-species po uh, politics, but um, I think it's very important to consider all of these ethics when you're doing anything related to science or biotechnology. Um, the next question was about these factories. Um, it's not only the factories I'm worried about. I mean, they uh, put off a lot of um, byproducts into the environment. You hear of uh, headlines of frogs and fish shifting their genders. I mean, in the early headlines, they were calling them trans fish and trans frogs, which is totally the wrong terminology because that's like implicating that trans people are the result of some mutation. That's not true. Um, but uh, I would actually point my finger t more towards agricultural and petrochemical industries. I think that they're producing tons of shit. Like, um, the last time I checked, there were almost, there were more than 500 uh, different chemicals out there that we know to be endocrine disrupting. And um, the list has probably grown more and more every day. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna take them in groups so all of our, all of our speakers can feed in. There's uh, someone, yes, and, brilliant, go for it. Um, it's just another question to Mary Bouts. Um, did you discover, well, could you talk a bit more about, <coughs> sorry, I'm slightly unwell, um, hormones in trauma, relating to trauma? Um, brilliant. And any other questions? Right, so luckily I have gajillion. Um, so uh, packaged along with the question of trauma, I think kind of bouncing off uh, what person in the audience is saying there, um, I'm, I have a question for Joni, uh, which you know, anyone can feed back into, which is really, so we were talking about um, the idea of uh, subverting uh, the paranoia of the uh, 60s anti-psychiatry movement. Um, but, of course, when we're talking about a cure, that does imply some, uh, for mental uh, disabilities, for mental health issues, that does imply some kind of level of functionality, right? In order to sort of tackle the malfunction of the traumatised queer life, you need to sort of attach it to some kind of notion of what it is to be well. And with sort of state-mandated uh, and controlled uh, technologies of therapy like CBT and um, uh, different sort of uh, ways of doling out SSR SSRIs, um, that functionality is very much about being productive in a capitalist economy. So how do we transform our notions of functioning and malfunctioning around that? And uh, is that a problem at all? Or am I being paranoid? Um, and uh, something for Julie as well. Um, so you talk about different types of, of motherhood and how the uh, different technologies of, uh, of a kind of common stethoscope can interfere with that. I'm interested in uh, the way you focus on motherhood that is not usually captured, not usually provided for by um, 
by the state. So that's um, the motherhood of sex workers, the motherhood of people in surplus populations, single motherhood. And like, how can uh, these commons technologies, these hacked biomedical technologies provide a means of, of resistance for people? Um, but also, do you want, Mary, do you want to feed in on the first question? Um, or any other questions? Sure. Um, you know this, this phrase, um, from puberty to the grave? Um, this is like what, this is the strategy of the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, to, to address um, uh, all the traumas that we experience in our life from the growing pains of puberty to reaching menopause. I mean, it's they want to keep you on a hormone prescription for your entire life. But at the same time, there are many traumas that are invented. For example, there's no um, such thing as serotonin without depression, right? They're inventing these diseases, trying to sell them to you, and therefore they can sell the product to you. Um, this might be a really simplistic way to talk about traumas that are actually that are real to a lot of people. I know that you know calling depression or gender dysphoria something that uh, companies invented to sell pills to you. It might be um, yeah, it might be offensive to some people, but this is. This is the way I, I, I like to stay critical on these companies just because I, I, I don't believe they're, they're making cures. I think they're making customers. Thank you. Um, Shuli or Joni? Um, well, okay, functionality, um, wellness. It's really difficult um, concept, to be honest. Because like, so um, our our conception of wellness is essentially ability to work that's how like that's how like the the like medical um medical state apparatus regarding like benefits and disability works like if you are you are considered well if you if you can contribute your labor to capital um i think i think it's a very difficult and nuanced um project that we must embark on is like appropriating, reappropriating the notion of wellness from that like kind of like base um, baseline of, of kind of productive functionality. Um, I think it's like I think one possible way of thinking about it is um, wellness being kind of like autonomously defined as uh, as like some kind of like flourishing um and it's difficult to know that like what like what kind of like functioning that kind of like feeds into like but like simple simple like ability to like care for oneself and others i think like i mean ideally in like f the future world all activity will just be like creative and care <laughs> and like production that can be done by the robots or whatever you know um but like or at least it at least it won't it won't appear as work um you won't need to work so like so like it's a matter of like kind of 
reconciling like the fact that we like as proletarians we do we do need to function in, in a certain way and especially as like welfare benefits are being cut um but also clinging on to like a notion of functionality which is and wellness which is ultimately about social reproduction about care and happiness thank you Actually, uh, so the project I'm dealing with, particularly dealing with the ultrasound and echography does uh, work with ultrasound and uh, within the ultrasound itself, uh, uh, by varies the frequency, uh, what you can detect is quite different. So, uh, you know, for using, uh, for detecting different things or in terms of different species uh, in human or in animals, uh, the frequency will be different. Uh, I think uh, the, the project I'm working with by converting the ultrasound into uh, audible sound and by allowing the woman to uh, manipulate uh, again, these uh, audible sound into a kind of sonic uh, expression. Uh, I am in that tradition of uh, sonic uh, resistance, I think, uh, in the sense of electronic disturbance and, yeah. What do you mean by uh, tradition of sonic resistance? Uh, well, I think uh, the sonic resistance, uh, which is the, I think, uh, you know, like, you know about the the frequency of uh, 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 that that how the the sound can be used as a weapon, right? The invisible sound because uh, how uh, because you're different age that you can hear certain sound or you cannot hear certain oh, sound. Oh, like mosquito noises, that kind of yes, thing. Yes, yes, ah, exactly. Right. So uh, you know, so it's like between sonic resistance and uh, uh, the digital disturbance that in terms of uh, how I'm using technology, I guess. So, um, any questions from the floor? So, down there, sort of middle-ish. Anyone else? Hi, thank Wait. you. Um, Joni, I'm really glad that you brought up the issue of care and nurturing and this kind of ongoing care in a, um, between a group of people because that's such an important part of parenthood in general. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about pregnancy and the idea of... Um, reproduction being just to do with yeah th there's been a focus on the womb shall we say and in fact reproduction is so much to do with you know care for other people um and it occurs to me that there's a kind of um a problem with this uh connected to the idea of self-care which has been a huge part of the discussions leading up to this in the other days and i'd be really interested um to hear the panel's thoughts about what cyber-feminism can do to balance these really conflicting issues of care in general, being a caregiver, and the necessity for self-care, which is such an important part of interacting with the cyber world. Um, just your thoughts would be really appreciated. Brilliant. So, Joni, you're up first. Unless anyone has... Groups of three, weren't you? Pardon? You did groups of three, weren't you? Well, there's... Um, I'm just interested in, uh, in that question, really, and there's no hands <laughs> from the floor, so... Also, I'm the chair. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> Always my boss. It's not the revolution yet. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, you're right. Um, yeah, I think self-care, hashtag self-care, as I like to call it, um, is like both an essential and incredibly problematic concept. Um, 
there's a reason why it's become so prevalent in like kind of millennial culture. Like I know, like I follow an Instagram. It's called like Boring Self Care, and it just kind of like does like little, little like drawings, being like, I took my medicine today. Hashtag Boring Self Care. Um, <laughs> like, and it, like yeah, it's nice and whatever. Like, <laughs> um, but like yeah, so like okay, I run a workshop when I used to do a queer ecology club when I was doing my masters, which was like on self-care and, and like the problems with it, like in terms of being essentially an, individual, an individualization of, of stress and care, care responsibilities and, and how um, there's kind of, and like, so like, so like, so there's, what, there's one kind of thing is like, it's like you, you're expected to have a certain independence in, in terms of like care ecologies, like you should, you should be able to like, do all the all the basic stuff like of like reproducing yourself for yourself. That is that is like essential to like the neoliberal neoliberal regime where like where traditional kind of reproductive households are disrupted and like and the pro, and proletarians are like individualized to the point where they are doing a full dose of self reproductive labor and a full dose of um, productive labor, which is why we're all so fucking depressed. Um, and I think, essentially, um, like, and, and the, the, other, the other problem is, is, is that, it, like, I mean, <laughs> I have definitely been the recipient of this, this conversation. So when, when people go, like, okay, like, I can't, I can't take care of you anymore. Like, I'm doing self-care. Like, and, like, and that's, that is fine. Like, People do need to like look after themselves and not like expend themselves to, to, like for the sake of other people. Like there needs to be an evenness around it. But like, but there is it does come with a certain ideology of being of just of being like okay, like I I've like I've like got hold of this like feminist concept of self care now, and and I'm going to use it. I'm going to almost like weaponize it to like absolve myself of any responsibility of reproductive labor. Um, so like yeah, and like I mean like at the end of my talk, I talked about like. Commons, care, like, and I think, like, I mean, obviously, like, within like a kind of like disaster situations, like, there was like, like, there was quite a bleak little picture of that era. But like, yeah, I think, I think, self care must always be cannot be abstracted from a an ecology of care, and these are like, and like, and and like what we should aim to be doing is like is redistributing like the flows of care care and care labor like from its like usual like women and non-binary people towards men and never return back um kind of like this kind of like metabolic rift of care labor um and this this kind of is like how I, how like i envisage like a kind of care politics going into the future is to like is to like is for like a a, re, a reappropriation of care wealth, I guess. And I th it's interesting in both in your talk and in your answer, in your answer how um, the touchstones of the ability to kind of recircuit re those like intra economies of like care and energy are very much bound up with um, like our virtual lives, like Instagram mm. and these sort of alternative Facebook groups which create these like 
different affects according to which we don't actually have to hate ourselves. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, um, uh, Mary, would you like to... Yeah. My turn? Yes, your turn. Okay. <laughs> um, so the, the idea of self-care was um, definitely not around when I was growing up. And I grew up in a Chinese household, which basically means you're like constantly being whipped to be productive and rise to the top. And um, and then like this, you know, people started saying like self-care. It's like, oh, so I can actually take a break. Like that's nice. Um, but I really do see the idea of self-care as a way for us to transform a lot of the blah 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 that we're talking about, like all these theoretical concepts, into practice into actually forming solidarities with our micro communities or digital communities. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Um, Shirley, would you like to feed back on that one? Or turn no, to, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I really enjoyed. It's a kind of self-care. Um, well, I guess it depends how you, Never mind. Um, that is definitely self-care. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, you know, everyone has a sort of practical handbook going forward. When <laughs> um, so what um, struck me about your talk is the way that um, uh, the sort of open source networked ways in which technology can be hacked and reinvented is a uh, becomes a sort of, it's almost like a really on-the-nose metaphor of um, taking technologies that were developed in uh, the military-industrial complex or say, your presentation in the uh, like pharmaceutical um, agro-industrial complexes and transforming them into uh, something that's kind of genuinely life-producing, life-giving and that's not pure production and pure, pure negation. Um, so I was wondering... Um, what you think, like what technologies would be necessary for us to kind of seize hold of in order to like ensure a reproductive justice future? I mean, like that's a big question, no pressure, but yeah, after the after the sonogram, like what's what's the most urgent technology that we need to communize? Uh, particularly, I think Mary is quite involved with this, but there's a whole uh, group of uh, kind of biohacker community in terms of uh, self-produced device, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of making, you know, even uh, with uh, gynecology device and, uh, you know, there's really, uh, I think, uh, you know, included uh, quite a, a lot of women all in these biohacker group that uh, Mary is associated with uh, that actually promoting uh, using whatever sort of, you know, you can wire up your own devices and DIY or DIWO, do it with others and uh, creating a kind of, uh, you know, equivalent to what could be a, a microscope uh, in this um, hacking form. So there is a I, I sort of find that as a, a way to go, uh, as a trend. Mm -hmm. You know, even the the echo pens, uh, uh, form is also in that direction. Um, you know, at the same time, I think uh, 
what comes down to is actually, for me, it's, it's almost like all these uh, is, is really also about the kind of political and social issues that we are dealing with, you know. So there's a kind of fundamental uh, health system that we're working with, including your talk. Uh, you know, basically, if, if what are we kind of, you know, resistance about, you know. So uh, the device is one thing, the hacking device is one thing, but the whole system is, is still a lot to uh, work with, right? So, yeah. so um, I have a question. Um, I, was, I came away from your talk um, sort of fascinated but unsure about whether you're a partisan of uh, reframing what we think of as the natural or whether we should just like abandon the idea of like naturalness as a shibboleth for wellness or or value entirely and just like fully embrace our ourselves as like synthetic hmm. um, first of all um, I reject any kind of glorification of the natural and the normal, and also ideas of techno-solutionism, that if you aren't normal or natural, that you can be corrected with technology, with pills. So I reject all of these claims. Um, what was the other thing I was gonna say? What's the other point? Should we embrace the synthetic? Um, Actually, I'm in favor of uh, creating as many multiplicities as we can and embracing those multiplicities. And this can be multiplicities of, of visions, of narratives, of stories. Because right now, like what's dominating our sphere is, uh, is global capitalism, right? All these fictions that they're selling to us. And this is reinforcing yeah, the, the brainwashing that we experience every single day. And so I believe in deprogramming this. I believe in refiguring new narratives. Um, and these strategies then become strategies of resistance. And as, as if you'd planned it, uh, we are just about at time. Strategies of resistance. Thank you so much to our panel.